Join me as I highlight small businesses in the craft industry with interviews on site at distilleries, breweries, and more. This podcast is all about getting to know the people behind the craft, celebrating their hard work, and of course, having a few samples along the way. Welcome to Crafted Conversations. In this episode, I traveled to Benson, North Carolina to visit Broad Slab Distillery and speak with the man behind it all, Jeremy Norris. Broad Slab is a short drive away from where I frequently visit North Carolina, but I'm glad I finally had the opportunity to take a trip and tour the beautiful farm. This one I'm excited to bring to video one day because the space is beautiful and Jeremy's created something very impressive. The highlight of this crap distillery is their flu-cured bourbon and rye, a process patented by Broad Slab, and I'm sure it will start to turn heads in the, in the spirits industry, but I'll let Jeremy explain further. If you enjoyed this episode and others we've done, I'd really appreciate it if you follow us on social media and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform and leave a rating and review. Soon we'll be doing this show in full video format. I've actually recorded a few episodes already and I'm excited to share what I've created. So stay tuned. All right, let's get to Broad Slab. Cheers. Jeremy, we're here at Broad Slab Distilling at the Distillery on site. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. Yeah, yeah, glad to have you. We just had an awesome tour, and I don't often get to do that before I record with the person who gave the tour. And obviously, you're the owner, distiller, everything above. Yeah, and the tour guide. And I the like tour guide. Tours, yeah. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into this. So, um, I grew up here on the farm where we're sitting right now, and um, I was raised by my grandparents. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. And, you know, we just left from the, uh, the the gift shop area up there. You notice that big oak tree out front. Um, we used to have a produce stand up under that oak tree. Hmm. And uh, we used to sell roadside produce. And we tended all this land and produced produce. And this was before they opened Interstate 40 out here. And 50 was the route to the beach. So we had all the traffic coming out of Wake County and you know, up north, we're coming by us going to the coast and we had a market to market and sell our produce. So, um, what that did for me is, um, we worked at home. Um, we sold our produce under that oak tree and I spent like majority of my time was spent with my grandfather in the field working up under the tree and, you know, hearing the stories and, uh, what he did and how they used to do it. And he was a, he was an ex bootlegger. <laughs> and, um, so I grew up here and, um, still live here on the farm, um, raised my kids here. And, um, I've pretty much, I'm still working here. So, uh, that's kind of my story. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it's pretty cool to be, you know, this, this has been your childhood, you know, place where you were raised and now you're still here working on it. How mm. much has that meant to you that you're able to build a small business and make some awesome whiskey? Yeah. So it, you know, it didn't happen overnight and it started with a dream and a vision and, uh, people thought I was crazy. And then about <laughs> two years into it, I thought I was crazy. <laughs> and, um, you know, but we have just inched away at it and just kept working at it and stayed persistent and built it into what it is now and hope we go a lot further than we are now but um we've been very blessed and fortunate to be able to get up and never hit the asphalt and work here and make a living and share it with people while we're doing it and um so you know it's a lot of work but it's all worth it so of course that blood sweat and tears Mm -hmm. 
but part of the part of the reason why I like talking to people like you who are doing these, you know, this craft distillery, it's it, it it's a lot of TLC, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, you're yeah. here every day with your hands on the product. Yeah. Do you think that adds to the the character of what you're doing? Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, and you know, I tell folks I don't look at this as a job; it's a lifestyle. Sure. Um, there are no set hours. Um, sometimes it's very long. Sometimes it's average, but more times than not, it's very long. <laughs> so, um, and in our situation, sometimes we'll spend our days outside in the field, you know, doing the stuff that we got to do outside during daylight. And so we don't get behind it. Distillery, we come up here and work, you know, dark in the distillery. Um, and a lot of times we'll come out on, you know, Sunday and, and just tidy up or do a little something. Um, it never stops, and it's no set schedule. It's just it's a lifestyle instead of a job. Well, speaking of lifestyle, I mean, I, I'm a big whiskey guy, and I, I've, I've had ideations talking to my friends about opening a distillery down the road, playing the game. Mm -hmm. um, did Were you always a whiskey person? Did you get into it? Uh, I was not. Um, <laughs> so growing up, there was always a jar around of clear whiskey, moonshine, whatever you want to call it. You know, a lot of people in this area – you know, they would have peach brandy, apple brandy. And we're not talking about the peachy flavored sweetie stuff, neither. We're talking, you couldn't taste any peaches. In it. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was just high proof, you know, brandy whiskey, grape brandy. A lot of them made, you know, corn whiskey. And um, when I grew up, you, you took a swig out of the jar and it was not really made for enjoyment or, <laughs> you know, the palate per se and drank a lot of beer. You know, it would, hit the jar and then hit the can sort of thing. And then as I got older and started the distillery, um, you know, I kind of st stuck with what I knew. And then I, I kind of graduated and growed into appreciating the different flavors and profiles and the heat. And it was something you just don't, I don't think you wake up one day and say, well, you know what? I just, I want to, I want to drink some, you know, 122 proof single barrel whiskey. You got to kind of <laughs> grow into that. Absolutely. You know, so, um, and, uh, that's kind of been my experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I told you off mic that I, I have a lot of friends that introduced me to this stuff and all the variations across all the different types of whiskeys, scotch, Irish, bourbon, rye, et cetera. And I've traveled around and talked to a lot of craft distillers that, 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 you know, make bourbon and everyone thinks, you know, bourbon is bourbon, but it's so interesting and fascinating to me that, one bourbon is so different than the next. And that, I mean, it even goes for the batches, right? You make one batch, your next batch is going to be very different. What would you say sets yourself apart? What, what makes your bourbon so different? Well, so for one thing, we grow every grain that goes into our bourbon. Um, so we know what we got as far as grain selection, where it comes from, what variety it is, what kind of land it come off of, what season it went through. And it's all about oil levels in the grain. It's all about starch content in the grain. Um, and that can vary between type of land it was grown on, mm -hmm. you know, seasons, a lot of variables. But we we chose to we grow a, a non-GMO uh, white dent corn. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's actually a hybrid. It's a hybrid variety um, of corn. So it's white in color, but it's not like sweet corn. It's still a dent corn that you would make grits or corn cornmeal or something like that out of or whiskey. Um, and I think it makes it a little sweeter little uh, cleaner, smoother type clear spirit. Right. Um, we also use on our on our rye, we just use a bruisey, which is a, a kind of a, that's the name of it, bruisey rye. 
it uh, is kind of common in this area. Um, but what sets us apart is that we, we grow all that grain and um, we do everything on direct fire, direct heat. And, um, you know, we build our equipment where, and it's all copper. It's nicely put together you saw it. Oh yeah. But, um, it's kind of old school. Uh, we do everything old school. We do all our own milling. Um, but when you were talking about, cons you know, what makes it different, what I found interesting when we got in this whole barrel aging Rick house, you know, into this bourbon scene and I'm still learning, <laughs> I'm just getting started. Um, I think we're doing a pretty decent job, but out of one batch of my whiskey, it'll fill up about five barrels on the finished distillation. Sure. We'll, we'll usually yield, you know, on a good run, 250 gallons, and then we got to proof it down. So we'll we'll get enough to fill about five barrels. And what I've been noticing is, you know, you got to put a good spirit in a, in a good barrel, but you can put uh, the same whiskey in five different barrels, and you're going to get five different variations. Right. So <laughs> the barrel has as much in your cooper – uh, has as much to do with your success and your outcome as you do. Now, you can't put bad whiskey in a good barrel. And um, anyway, if you age it long enough, you might, you, might yeah, be able to get away, you might be able to get away with that. But, it, you know, a lot of things got to come together, but it has a lot to do with what it goes into and the environment it's in. For sure. Well, and that, that, that we didn't really talk about that yet either. I mean, you're on the farm growing your own thing. So mm -hmm. right in the back of the yard, or, you know, you have all your stuff. Is it 100% of the stuff that you're using on off of your farm? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So um, uh, we uh, we tend a little over 100 acres. Okay. And um, if, when, if we, we're looking at doing an expansion in the near future, I hope. If we do, we're going to have to pick our acres up a little bit. Um, and we're going to have to pick our – we're going to have to put in some more grain storage. We have several grain bins. Um, our grain bins have fans on it, so we're able to, you know, dry and maintain. That's another thing. When you grow your own stuff, you got to store it. Right. You, know, you got to have tw a twelve-month supply until you harvest next year, and um, you got to keep the bugs out of it. <laughs> you got to keep the moisture out of it. You got to make sure you ain't got any leaks. It's really a pain. Oh, um, yeah. But you know what you got, and you got plenty of it. So, um, yeah, hundred percent of what we do is, um, and we we actually got old tobacco barn made into a malt house, so we make our malt and everything. Yeah, well, I'm excited to talk about that. But I, I, I mean, you kind of said something about all those little nuances about you know keeping the corn, storing, storing the grain. How much did you have to learn on the fly when you started this business that you said, "Oh, yo, crap, I didn't think about that," or this popped up? And you're like, mm. We learn every day. We <laughs> learn every day, several times a day. But um, so coming from a a produce background where we grew and sold uh, vegetables and produce. You know, I knew a lot about growing and farming and soil health and, you know, pH and all the stuff. That is, that's a long conversation in itself. But I didn't know a whole lot about row crop farming. That's kind of a different animal. Um, grain storage, moisture levels. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we started our own harvesting about six or seven years ago. I never I never ran a combine. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a learning curve and experience. Luckily... We come from a farming community where there's plenty of people in the community that's always got an answer to your question. We've got great help through our Ag Extension Agency. So if there's ever a question that comes up, and there's always questions that come up, even if you've been farming for 70 years, there's, you know, even old timers, there's always a new problem and a new condition. Um, but we got answers and we get, we rely on a lot of our neighbors for help and, and stuff like that for, you know, recommendations. For sure. With you growing all the things you have, are you 
do you feel like you can experiment still? Could you find if, if you wanted to grow some barley or do different type of rye, different type, if you want to do some bloody butcher corn just for fun, uh-huh. or do you think you need to outsource that? No, no, no. We would definitely do. And we, we, to a certain extent we do. Um, I actually, uh, I'm talking with a, a corn breeder now Cool. that, um, he is working on a kind of like hibernizing the bloody butcher, um, to make it, you know, everything has a, it might be a good grain, but a weak stalk. So, um, if you don't have like, you know, or a good root system or a good stalk system, then you can grow a decent ear of corn. And I don't know if you're going to be able to harvest it because if you get a thunderstorm, it'll be on the ground. Right. It's kind of hard to, to pick it when it's on the ground. So there's a lot of variables and, and, you know, so these guys are looking at, you know, how can not change it per se, but make it more sustainable as far as, um, you know, root system, maybe oil level and, um, you know, where it's actually uh, more feasible to grow these, these specialty corn, say, like Bloody Butcher. Right. Um, Bloody Butcher. And they, they, they tend to yield a lot less, too. So there's a lot of stuff stacked against you uh, there. But um, I think there's some people working on that. I think they're going to try to improve them. And um, we're going to grow some. That's on our agenda. Um, NC State. Uh, Mount Olive College, they're actually working on uh, barley varieties right now. What best suits in this region, what works best for brewers and distillers. So there's people there's people working on it. That's awesome. Well, speaking of experimentation, I know we poured a little bit of it, but I want to know more about this this flu-cured bourbon. Tell me about how that start, came about. I'm sure because that's part of the fun is that you're, you're, you, you own this place. You can wake up one morning and say, you know what, we're going to try this. Yeah, so that was that was just kind of a a, a fluke um, that <laughs> some things happened all at one time or within a, a few hours that made a light bulb go off and it was kind of an accident. Um, but how it started is I had some new whiskey barrels that I had gotten in that I didn't fill in time and they dehydrated and you know they start getting loose and you need to run. What, how we do it, we run really hot water, like 180 degree water over them. The hot water tends to dehydrate them and swell them up and get them tight where we can fill them with whiskey. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in there by myself and had these barrels and the rings were loose on them. And, you know, they were almost, you know, they needed hydrating. And I was running this hot 80 degree water over this new, I mean, the oak was just beautiful, kind of white oak, you know, flawless. And it got dark really quick. And um, I thought to myself, I said, well, maybe some of that color is coming from the steel ring, um, but all of it can't be. So, you know, they talk about an oak barrel being like a sponge and it's porous and it takes on its environment. And this is all the stuff that I had studied and read. And um, so that really uh, made it go off in my head. This thing is like a sponge because what it was doing, it was actually pulling some of that charcoal where it was like a number four char it was wicking through and making it it's slightly now. I mean, it just didn't go from night to day <laughs> or day to night. But, um, you know, I was like, you know, this thing's really pulling some of that charcoal through this wood because it was so dry. And um, so I found that really interesting. And um, then by that time, a friend of mine had walked in and he was telling me about this new rye whiskey that um, asked me had I tried it. And it was a Canadian rye whiskey. And I said, no, I hadn't tried it. He's like, well, you need to try it. It's really good. So we were talking, just conversation while I was hydrating these barrels. And when I went home that night, I looked up this rye whiskey he was talking about. And in the description, it was like, 
you know, I don't remember if it was a tobacco front or a tobacco finish or a big tobacco presence, but anyway, there was a tobacco referenced into that description. And I had just got done hydrating those barrels and the, the thought come across my mind, you know, sponge, environment, uh, viscosity, pressure, you know, all this stuff. Like, I wonder if anybody's ever put a whiskey barrel in a tobacco barn during curing stage. So we tried it and voila, it, it worked. And um, it's so it, it well, you drank some of it. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it, it does make a big difference. And uh, so there's actually... I didn't even show you this. Oh, yeah, look at that. So this was when we were doing the trials with NC State. They were helping us do the trials. So that's a before and after. And that's a, both of those are three weeks old when we did that trial. That's so different. Yeah. In such a short amount of time. Wow. And you were saying, too, that they, uh, they had popped because that gets so hot. Yeah, so what happens is, you know, the viscosity thins down... It, you know, the, the tobacco barn reaches 165 degrees in there. So when you heat a liquid, it naturally is going to thin down. The viscosity is going to thin down. Well, when that happens, it expands. And when it expands, it builds pressure. So you're getting heat, pressure, a lot of stuff going on. And it's intense. It's really intense. So um, we actually, we've lost some barrels where it just, it can't stand the heat. It can't stand it, you know. And that's just part of it. I mean, that's what makes it unique. Yeah, and I we're, we have some pours right now of that very bourbon, and I can't place it. I mean, I, I don't want to say tobacco; it sounds cliche, but it has a tobacco note that I can't place. What it's so unique, right? Right, it can't help to. So, and I get asked the question all the time. Well, what do you compare your uh, bourbon to? What's it like? <laughs> That's the I, I, seriously, I get that question all the time, and I'm like, um, I don't have an answer to that question. It's, <laughs> it is broad slab bourbon. It, it, You're right. It is pleasantly unique <laughs> it is really it it really does put a spin on it and make it it makes it a unique product so you started with your grandfather's recipe that moonshine yep and you did you ever source anything to to, to pay the bills or would you that was a, your first thing you sold that to pay the bills to shine the, yeah. when we started yeah when you started when you started yeah so yeah we, that's the first thing we went to market with and then we did rum so we okay. kind of diversified okay. our market with the, the carolina coast brand and so, so people say, well, why did you start a moonshine distillery on the farm and bring in a rum? I was like, well, that's just diversification. We wanted to uh, appeal to a, a, another clientele for a double shot at success, you know, <laughs> to, uh, and so that's how that came about. And then we've actually done really well with, with the rum. Are you using that same mash bill for the, the, the moonshine to age as your age spirit or is it no, different? No, different? it's okay. different. It's yep. different. We used to have one called the reserved. It was the same mash bill. But it, it is it is totally um, it's you know it's basically our main bourbon mash bill is seventy percent corn, so it makes it a little bit on the sweeter side. Sure. And then um, you know we use a twenty five percent rye mm-hmm. and five percent malt. Um, it's pretty straightforward and basic on the mash bill we use. Awesome. So you have bourbons, you have a rye, you mm-hmm. have your white dog, your moonshine, mm-hmm. and then you have your rums and. I know I tried the I loved it. That's too dangerous. Is the uh, the yeah, apple apple, apple, shine, apple yeah. shine? Yeah. Uh, have you thought about venturing into anything else? Have you thought of you mm, know vodkas, gin, no, cinnamon? No, 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 no. So we don't have the equipment to um, you know to do gin or vodka. We would need to put in a column still. And my interest really ain't there. You know, my interest is you know vodka is supposed to be no distinct flavor, color, or smell. Yeah, neutral. And uh, so a neutral product and. 
you know, and I guess some people try to see how neutral they can make it. That what makes a, a really a good vodka. And then on these whiskeys, you try to see how complex you can make it. So <laughs> that's kind of where my interest is at. What about a single malt? Uh, I have thought about that. And maybe, you know, if we do the expansion that we're hoping to do in the future with, um, you know, a new mash tun and stripping steel and uh, we up the acres and get some more grain storage, we're, we're, you know, we, you might see one of those in a, in a few years. Okay. Okay. We'll talk about the expansion. So I know that's what we can look forward to from Rod Slab, right? Yeah. So um, w- what we want to do right now, we have a, a one unit that's kind of a, a dual purpose piece of equipment. We use it as our mash tun and our stripping steel, and it's capable of doing thousand gallon batches. Um, and the only problem with that is our, our finished steel, the all copper, uh, the pot steel, and uh, that we do our finish runs in, it's 500 gallons. So it takes me two stripping runs just to get enough to fill up 500 gallons. Sure. The, the finished steel. So what we want to do. And, and two, with it being dual-purpose piece of equipment, we either got to be mashing in or strip distilling. And it just kind of throws a kink in the system. So what we want to do is we want to put in a 2,000-gallon dedicated mash tun, 2,000-gallon dedicated stripping steel, so we could come in and do all three tasks at one time. We can mash in, strip the steel, and finish the steel. And, you know, instead of taking two batches to fill up the, the, the finished steel, we can do it in one. It's going to up our production um, about ten times what we are now. Very cool. Is that is that in the near future or is that? Oh, it's to be determined. We <laughs> also, we, yeah, we got to see how this, uh, you know, demand and and you know, cash flow and a lot of different variables. Um, you know, on that, I, I wish it was. I wish we could start next week, but it's kind of complicated. We're going to have to put a lot of infrastructure in to support the the new stuff. So tell me about tell me about making the whiskey itself. How much of that was a trial and error? Did you what, did you find a sweet spot for the mash bill? Did you find a sweet spot for the aging? Was that just a... uh, we're still finding sweet spots? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's um, I say you you got to make a good spirit up front, and and you know that's pretty straightforward. I mean, I've been distilling a long time, and I've been making white whiskey for a long time, and you know you got to be you got to be disti- your process has got to be pretty good. To make a unaged white whiskey desirable and palatable, right? And you you tried it also, so um, I had it kind of nailed down. I, I knew what to look for. You know, what does the mash need to smell like? How does it need to perform? Your fermentations—that's the first step. You know, a good healthy fermentation. And then I've got some techniques on distilling, but when it comes off the steel, for it to be palatable and desirable to drink, you've got to do everything pretty good. So um, we had that pretty much down pat, and um, I said, well, if I can make good white whiskey, a barrel's only going to make it better, right? right. So we kind of stuck with that. And um, we've been experimenting trying to pick efficiencies up and stuff, you know, as far as our conversions and stuff like that. But, um, and that that steel does a good job. That direct fired uh, pot steel, um, it's really unique. Our process is unique. Um, And I think it comes across in the product. Well, it comes across too in your voice and you're giving the tour. You're enthusiastic about what you've done here because you you helped design or you just, you designed yeah i did design yeah yeah so it, it's um and people say well you you know you must really like building things no it's just you do what you got to do if you want to do something bad enough and your pocketbook's not so big you uh you you cancel the order and 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 start go to the shop just basically. do it yourself yeah that's so cool yeah i mean 
part of the fun thing about this too is that you can you can kind of dictate what you want to do, what your priorities are, and what what you're going to make next. Have you have you had any barrels that you've decided that, you know what this is too good? I'm going to squirrel this away for a couple more years, or are you chasing the cash register? Yeah, so. Actually, the really good barrels, we're releasing them. Um, <laughs> and then the other stuff we're saying, that it's maybe not so good. I'm like, well, maybe it'll get better with age. Sure. So, uh, But we are squirreling some barrels back. And um, we want to kind of grow and do the expansion. So we're releasing some. We're not going to release everything. We're going we're gonna to release some stuff to, you know, to keep us sustainable and, and try to grow the brand um, just enough. But, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a delicate balance snack. Of course, and I would I would assume that your bourbon is probably your bestseller. Is that correct? Um, I would say now, yeah. And yeah. we we just released a single barrel a couple months ago. Sure. And the the ninety three proof it just got released yesterday. So, yeah, we're still figuring for the past two months it's been the bestseller. But, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think from here on out it'll be the bestseller. Would you consider the bourbon your baby? You came here to make it, bourbon. Yes, it is. It is now. It's um, and it is a but. I mean, you, you've especially when you start in the field and the grain storage and then the milling and then you get into mashing in, going to the fermenters, fermentation, and then strip distilling, final distilling, and then proofing, and then goes into the barrel, and then you put it in the rickhouse. And usually we're back in a year, year and a half, pulling it out of the rickhouse, carrying it, I call it a field trip, to the tobacco <laughs> barn. So and then we let it stay a few days over there, and then we get it back, we bring it back home. It stays in here at least through one winter before we pull it out. Um, and we're in there drilling and sampling. So, yeah, it kind of does become you, babe, because you're always, uh, you know, it seems like we're, we're always got our hand on it. Right. So um, it, we, we, every couple of three months, it gets touched again somewhere down the line. Have you, what was the biggest thing that you, you didn't expect going into the business? I mean, I, people think, we talked about this off mic too, is that people, people think this is a dream job. You could drink whiskey all day and have nah. a good time. If you drink whiskey all day, we wouldn't get the job done. But. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, and I stay stretched out with tasks <laughs> all the time. But um, the biggest thing is I thought when we started a distillery that it would just be so cool <laughs> and that we would just have, you know, ample amount of money, cash flow. That was wrong. Um, we we for The first two years... I almost shut the distillery down because I'm like I'm not I'm not let, I'm not getting in my so deep. Um, but they changed some legislation and some stuff and made it a little more favorable market, so we stuck it out. But um, like I said, we've been open for 12 years and I feel like I'm just getting started. So um, yeah, that was the the main thing is trying to figure out how how to manage the finances and the time and you know how much to into it when to back off and call it quits it's all an equation um and and we're constantly working on it but um you know it's easier now i mean we're, we've been we're getting a little more established more people know about us you know we got more tourism um bottle sales are up uh we still got a long way to go though no, of course well I, I mean hey when we did the tour today we we walked by there's a wedding going on at one of your venues you yep. have uh i i the, the cocktail bar and, and and the tasting room is a beautiful i mean you have a beautiful farm Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's part of the grandeur of having this little. It's a destination. It's not just yeah. Uh, and, and so we diversified too. So you know we farm. So there's a little bit of income come off farm. We sell. We rotate out with some soybeans. Most of our grain we tend you know winds up in the in the steel at some point or a barrel. But um, we built this event venue um, that we hold all events. We've actually got a couple Airbnb properties on oh, the farm. Okay. Um, one of them's in a tobacco barn, old tobacco oh, barn. That's pretty cool. cool. We call it the backer barn. 
Um, and we, uh, we've got the bar area up front and gift shop. Um, and we, we actually got another little smaller venue up front too, for like smaller events, 50, 50 people and under. Okay. But, uh, yeah, we, we try to diversify. So it's not, not all the eggs in one basket. No, I, Hey, that's smart. And I, that's why I think it's, it, you're in a unique position. You, you can really experiment with what you're doing. And I, I'm curious, are you going to be, do, going to be doing more of the tobacco barn aged bourbon is there a plan for that oh yeah yeah so um right now we just have one tobacco barn that's been retrofitted be able to house these barrels it houses 26 barrels at a time we did 150 barrels this past year um but you know we're gonna see how it goes if we need to vamp up our production in the distillery then that means we're gonna have to add some barns we're gonna have to retrofit more barns to house more barrels but that's something that we're looking at and uh, you know we're gonna uh, we're not going to put the horse before the cart right. you know, I say, or the, the cart before the horse. I said that backwards. <laughs> I said that backwards. We're not going to put the cart before the horse. <laughs> I had asked you when we were doing the tour, cause I'm, I'm an idiot and didn't think about the, what, what flu cured meant, but I, I love cigars and mm-hmm. I had thought, Oh, well you're using tobacco and that would be kind of cool if you had like a cross promotion thing or you put your logo on a cigar and whatever. And you told me that flu-cured tobacco is not that is not what cigars use so right tell me and about the tobacco they might and i don't know you know i don't know everything about the tobacco industry if they use any of it it would be a very small amount Just for like blending blending aspects of it but my understanding the cigar tobacco is more like a air dried process more um like a burly tobacco right type right. deal um but that whole tobacco thing that's a pretty complex industry within itself um they they have to have a certain amount of fluid cured tobacco for the blending to make the flavors come out and um so other countries have actually tried to cut the united states out of the tobacco industry by you know producing it cheaper and you know using cheaper labor they have been unsuccessful at that because they don't get the flavor profile so what they're doing they're still using tobacco from all over the world in different countries, but they have to have a certain percentage of American flu-cured tobacco to make a desirable product. Huh. Um, that's what I've been told. That's, that's the reason why we're still in the business. That's um, And when I say we, us here you know, in the United States, and I think there's only like three states that flu-cured tobacco, and I want to say that's South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, maybe. I would assume so. Yeah, so I, I think that's... Georgia may, they may, but it's all here on the East Coast. Um, I think there's some guys up in at Canada actually flew cures in the back, but that's a different country. Right. Uh, but I think, yes, it's kind of a, a, a location. I mean, they don't do it all over the United States. It's kind of a East Coast thing. Yeah, I wish I knew more about tobacco law because things have changed so much, just like whiskey. Laws mm-hmm. have changed, ebbed and flowed so much. But it's kind of neat too that you're, you're, I mean, tobacco used to be one of the biggest products, or not, I shouldn't say one of, it is the biggest product of, of, of some of the southern states. Oh, yeah. So North Carolina was, tobacco was the number one industry. It's what basically set the state on the map to start with in the early days. I mean, it was the tobacco crop. Right, and how cool is it that you can age some whiskey with that? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And it's almost amazing to me, looking back, you know, our logistics, we're right here where I-95 and I-40 cross. Basically, you can jump off of exit 95 uh, or exit 79 on 95, and I'm uh, 
I'm four miles off that exit. You make a left. Either way, north or south, make a left, and I'm four miles on the right. Um, 40, I'm literally two and a half miles away from 40, but we're out here on the farm. Right. So logistically, we got a good situation. But then we had our name, Broad Slab. You know, that was the nickname of the community. And, you know, we had the farm, and then, you know, we're in – it's just like everything's too good to be true almost as far as lining up and me coming up with this idea. But – um. So I think the future will probably be good for us, hopefully. Well, and then you, like you said, the name, the Broad Slab name comes from the community. And how mm-hmm. much has a community, you know, ha- had an impact on what you're doing here? I'm sure you have a good time where you were raised and people around the, I mean, obviously there's tourists like me who come in yeah. and talk to you, but people who live here, you have yeah. some local history. Yeah. So we, we got some really good supporters locally. And then we got some people that just ain't figured us out yet. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I'll be honest, when we first opened the distillery, it was, it was, you know, uh, I would walk in the store, the old country store, you know, and uh, usually you would walk in and you would walk in on a conversation. Everybody would be sitting around the table talking. Well, I can actually remember, you know, 12, 12, 13, 14 years ago. I don't know how long ago it's been now. It's been a while. When the word got out that I was opening a legal distillery in the middle of nowhere out here on the, on the farm, I would walk in the store and it would get deathly quiet. <laughs> So that's a sure sign that they're talking, you know, they're, they're talking about you. And uh, so, but now it's more accepted and people are like, well, damn, he did know a little something. I mean, that thing turned out, he was lucky. It turned out for him, <laughs> you know, so it's funny now. Oh, man. Are you, you, I know you said you're just in North Carolina for now, right? Are you- yes. So um, we're planning on uh, neighboring states. I, I am going to have online distribution um through uh big thirst yeah i yeah, think yeah. Uh, my wife's working on that and that should be in a couple of weeks hopefully and i think they, they cover about 34 35 states yeah. they ship to they do a good job very cool and then do you have any plans or, or desire to get in other states physically or uh, the abc stores yes, are weird yes um so we, and there again it's gonna be supply and demand if we've got the supply and then and we can't move it here at home then i'm gonna be knocking i'll probably go uh, virginia virginia's on my my target um you know that's a control system too so say and the way they're set up totally different north carolina but um i I, you know i think with this flu cured we can probably get it in there hopefully well that's a good point i we i don't think we mentioned on 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 the recording we talked about it on the tour and off mic but you have a patent pending on that process yeah so we patent that process and um my patent attorney you know i he assured me that we'd get this thing buttoned up and um and we'd have a, a patent so we're gonna have the world's first flu cured bourbon and rye whiskey or any you know we got it patent or any kind of whiskey do you, do you foresee that being your big marketing push your big grab that this, these guys are doing this this is unique yeah i think the market's grown so much in the category and bourbon and so much stuff's going on now and there's so many brands in the marketplace Unless you're doing something really, really, really just exceptionally well and that that in marketing or production, but you've got to have some type of, of twist, something that grabs people's attention that you're not just another bottle on the shelf. And I think um us being dirt to bottle mm-hmm. and and family owned, you know, my, my two sons work in it, my wife's works in it. We are a true family. If you come out here to the farm, more than likely, I'm going to do your tour, or my son will do your tour, and you'll probably see my wife walking across the yard. I mean, it, we're, we're a family-owned operation, and uh, that and 
producing our, our, our grains and the twist of this unique product, I, I hope that sets us apart on the shelf. I mean, it does to me. That's why you stood out. I, I, I found you online and, and, and I'm down here in North Carolina quite a bit visiting some friends and um, I might be trying to make a move down here soon. But um, it, that you, you stuck out because I because of your story and because of this flu cured tobacco thing. And I was yeah. like, well, what the hell is this guy doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's fairly new and people are just finding out about it. And some people don't understand it. But, you know, when you come and you look, I got pictures and, you know, and I'll explain it and, and, and it actually works out. Have you had anyone in the whiskey community that has has like sent you a message or or said posted somewhere and said what the hell? what is this who's this who who is this guy because no, I've never heard of this you yeah, know what I mean yeah um no I hadn't I hadn't and so I get you know we're, we've been really quiet we've existed and unless you just stumbled upon us we've been really quiet for the past twelve years and we're actually changing that now we're trying to be more present on social media. We've redone our website. We're putting up a couple of billboards on these interstates. We're right here at us. So, yeah, I'm expecting more of that, you know, probably in the near future. But um, it's been kind of quiet around here up till now. But uh, things are moving fairly quickly now. I was going to say, well, enjoy it because I think once the word gets out of this uh, tobacco aged, it, I mean, it, I think it's a good, it's a good bourbon. So you'll you'll they'll have some snobs who are like who do? Yeah. <laughs> but no what you're doing is pretty cool and i i appreciate your uh, hospitality and having yeah. me here yeah um i'm definitely gonna grab a bottle of a flu cured bourbon because it's so unique and i want to show it share with my friends but uh i'll be back because yeah, i'm only I'm, I'm staying like 30 minutes away from here yeah good so. deal good deal be glad to have you glad yeah. you came out today hope you enjoyed it of course jeremy well hey cheers to what you're doing and uh thank you i mean obviously you're making more things for me to drink so yeah yeah thank you thank <laughs> yeah. you cheers Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The more reviews, the easier we are to find. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow us on social media so you never miss any of our updates. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and always be sure to drink responsibly. There are quite literally thousands of distilleries, so we're just getting started. Stay tuned for more conversations with master distillers, distillery owners, mixologists, and even bar owners, and more. Cheers. Cheers.